Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. I am very excited to welcome Dr. Carol Robin. She's a former professor of the famous Stanford course, Interpersonal Dynamics. She's also co-founder of Leaders in Tech and the author of an amazing book called Connect, which is about building exceptional relationships with family, friends, and colleagues. Hi, Carol. Hi. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited about this. Fantastic. Well, super excited to have you here. We are going to be touching on a topic that I am very passionate about, and clearly you are too with your accomplishments and everything that you've done. And we are going to be talking about emotions and feelings and how that has played an incredible role in your career and how you've gotten to where you are today. You have a very interesting story. And, you know, just we reached out to you just so people know, just because we are creating a piece on the art of connections. And when I learned about you and everything you're doing, I just thought, wow, I need to meet this woman and bought your book, which by the way, love, love, have already bought it for a few people. And hopefully everyone who's listening will be inspired to go read it just because there's such, such great learnings. And what I love so much about this book that you've written is it talks about the art of connections and, you know, emotional connections through relationships, family, friends, colleagues, you kind of talk about it all. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think these are probably some of the most important things that we deal with in life. Um, So it's a very important topic. Yep. You know, one of the things that I wanted to share just before we started this is you for many, many years taught at Stanford. Right. um, Almost, almost 18, almost 18, very long time. And as a a mother of a, a child who is right now waiting for college acceptances, Um, you know, Stanford is obviously one of those schools that is just the apple of everyone's eye It's just such an impossible school to get into. And, you know, I just want to remind everybody that it's the incredible professors, um, you know, behind, it's not just that building that's there. It's people (laughs) like you that make, made it so, so incredible. And, you know, I understand that there's, you know, this course that you taught for many, many years that has become, I think, legendary at the school, um, to say the least, just when you go online and you read about it and the videos that people have created and just the impact it's had on their lives. I mean, wow. And so, you know, I feel very blessed because it seems like I can get a lot of these lessons now in the book that you've written. So that was the hope. (laughs) That's definitely the hope. I'm not sure Stanford's going to be happy about that, but (laughs) um, it's good for the rest of us for sure. And I think a lot cheaper than a Stanford education. Well, yeah, that's how we got talked into. So just for the record, I didn't create touchy feely. I came to Stanford. uh, It was already a popular course. I became known as the queen of touchy feely just because mostly because I'd come from business And I think because I could connect the dots so much for students about how they would use all this in the quote real world. And because I tried my very best to embody it, to just live what we were teaching. Um, But I didn't create it. A lot of people think I did. And so I like, in fact, if anybody created it, it would be my co-author of the book Connect. So I always like to make sure that that's 
uh, that's clear. And um, and yeah, we wrote the book because the folks at Penguin Random House said, so how come there's no book? How come there's this course that thousands of students for decades have said was worth the entire price of tuition and there's no book? Absolutely. Uh, and actually, we, you know, he'd been approached multiple times before. I'd been approached a few times uh, independently. And we'd always said, because you're not going to learn how to be more interpersonally, con- you know, competent. You're not going to learn how to build relationships by reading about it. Mm-hmm. You actually have to go engage with other human beings. Right. Um, so the course is very much a, a very kind of active learning. Very experiential. Exactly. Very experiential. So obviously, the book can't completely do it justice, but you know, I will tell you, you know, reading it, there was definitely a lot of kind of aha moments for me, you know, yeah. And, yeah. And sometimes there are things that like you already kind of know, but you just need to be reminded like somehow yeah. there, you know, it's, it's really interesting. It's some of the kind of the basics of life and things that you should know and things that if you were raised with good morals and ethics and how to treat people. Well, but- and examples and models right i mean i think i think also sometimes it's like oh now i understand what happened in that relationship or i had this really lovely uh linkedin somebody reached out to me on linkedin they'd been walking through i don't know barnes and nobles and saw the book and bought the book and you know he wrote to me said hey i just want you to know that your book caught my eye i just broke up with my girlfriend i wish i'd had the book before because i suspect if i had i we would not have broken up so if nothing else, he kind of understood what had gone awry. The, the, the other thing I'll say before we get into your questions is that what, what you've hopefully done with the book also, and what I think comes closest to providing a reader with the course experience, is those sections at the end of every chapter that say, deepen your learning, go do something with Absolutely. what you just read. And then you're going to get pretty close to the experience the students get. And that's why it took us four years to write the book. (laughs) Understood. And I'm super proud to say that a lot of the principles that I'm learning from your book, I'm trying to apply at my advertising agency. Excellent. You know, we're working on, we're working with a kind of a coach right now that's helping us. Just so many of the thoughts are being kind of incorporated into the feedback that I want to lead, you know, with example by and incorporate with my team is giving them the tools on how to be better communicators and, you know, how to really emotionally connect with one another. So really exciting. And thank you again. Thank you again for this amazing contribution. So um, before we get into kind of the detail, because I know everybody wants to hear about the book and what it has to say. I want to learn a little bit about your back. You have a really interesting background of how you kind of got to being a Stanford professor and doing this for 18 years. So just tell us, you know, a tiny bit about your childhood, high school, college experience, um, just kind of how, what led you to this point? Well, for starters, if you had told me up until I was probably in my mid forties, that I would someday end up being a professor at Stanford, I would have told you you'd lost your mind. Um, So in my day, I would have asked you what you'd been smoking. Uh, (laughs) So one of my earliest memories uh, was uh, getting a chemistry set when I was like, I I don't know, what second grade, third grade, I don't know what age I was, but and just being fascinated by this whole idea of of chemistry and, and stating unequivocally that I was going to be a chemist. And then somebody told me about Marie Curie. And then I decided it was going to be Marie Curie and me. She was like my hero. I read everything that had ever been written about her, every autobiography. Um, and when I went away to college, I 
initially, you know, was in a four-year bachelor master's program in chemistry. However, if we go all the way back to when I first stated that I was going to be a chemist, I was a little girl. My grandfather said, the only chemistry you're ever going to do is going to be in a kitchen. Then fast forward to, um, and, you know, I was always both competitive and didn't see myself as a girl. I was never a girly girl. Mm-hmm. So um, now fast forward to when I'm a junior in high school and I have run for president of student council against my then on again, off again boyfriend. And he, um, and I win and I come home from, he became my permanently off again boyfriend at that point. <laughs> um, and I came home and my mom said, what happened? And I said, I won. And she said, wow, it's too bad you weren't born a boy. And, you know, the message was kind of unequivocally, you have all this potential, but too bad, wrong gender. Uh, and I remember thinking, well, that, that just seems crazy. Who the hell cares that I'm a girl? So I have these moments in my life where, that are punctuated by messages that I got mm-hmm. that just didn't feel like they fit with who I was. Understood. And I can't express to you how much I can relate to those stories you just told. You know, my parents are immigrants uh, from North Africa. Um, They're Jewish. And, you know, they came from a very primitive time also. Yes. Uh, I was always raised, you know, that women just, you know, got you got married and you took care of the kids and you made dinner every night. And that was kind of what you did. So the good home, you kept a good home and obviously all important things. But like you, I was very driven and competitive. And so it was very confusing to me. Um, And my dad has this joke, which is terrible, but I let him say it all the time because it's just such a reminder of, it's such a reminder of his past and where I come from and how important it is um, that I'm doing this, you know, she dynasty, but I'll always call him and say, I have news. And he'll say, is it a girl or a boy? That's literally what he says to me because he explains that back in the day when somebody yes. told you they were pregnant, if it was a girl, it was bad news. And if it was a boy, it was good news. Yeah. And it's become kind of a little joke between us. And, you know, I could correct him and say, dad, never say those words in front of me. Like it's so offensive, but I actually let him say it because it just reminds me of how different, you know, my generation is and how important it is that I'm doing she dynasty and what this means to people. Absolutely. So, so just a little side anecdote, but yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that you were kind of the boy that your dad never had yeah. uh, in his mind, because probably because you were driven and ambitious and, and competitive. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I also was attracted to the things that he, so he'd been a gymnast. I became a gym. I remember him teaching me to do a somersault. I was probably, you know, three, <laughs> um, And uh, I was always really interested. He was a businessman. I was always really interested in business. I don't know. We just, we also were very similar personality wise. Right. So your first job um, was going to work as the first woman in a non-clerical job at the uh, largest industrial automation company out of college. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I was hired as a sales engineer. And uh, the first thing that I learned was that if I was going to succeed, 
I was the only woman, as you said, in a non-clerical job. And if I was going to succeed, then I had to watch what the men did. (laughs) Um, And so then I watched and did what the men did, which a lot of times had to do with some amount of bluster, um, but not too much, especially as a woman, because you get too blustery, then, you know, then that wasn't so good. Um, but also very uh, goal-oriented, very task-oriented, mm-hmm. no room for feelings. And what, what the, you know, feelings, you'd leave those in the car. Um, and I got really, really good at it. And um, I, and it served me really well. I want to just be clear. It really served me well. Well, because you because you were in an all male environment. Exactly. Right. Right. And you know, and it served me really well until it stopped serving me, even in an all male environment. Mm-hmm. Because now, fast forward ten years, now I've gotten promoted, and uh, and I'm running a fifty million dollar region, and I'm at an offsite with my guys. They're all still guys. I finally fixed that, but not quite at the point of this anecdote. And I get a little excited. I've got an idea and I get a little excited. There's six of them and me. Uh, and they're all managers of different areas within my big region. And, and I'm getting crickets. And I'm like, come on, you guys, this could really be cool. Crickets. Uh, then, then I got a little more excited. What, what? And the more excited I got and the less any a reaction I got, the more altered I got. Finally, I was like, what's wrong with you guys? Why can't you see how cool this could be? My voice went up. And one of the guys leaned in, looked at me and said, Carol, is that water in the corner of your eye? And then he says, oh my God, are you going to cry? But then he said, are you human after all? And then I burst out crying. Wow. And I said, you don't think I'm effing human. I use the full expletive, but we don't want to offend anybody. I don't think there's anything more important than that for us to all talk about. And I tore up our agenda. We spent the next two days talking about who we were, what mattered, what we could do for how we could help each other, what we wanted. And I believe to this day, it was probably the biggest watershed moment of my career, of my many careers, because I've had six. Mm-hmm. because I believe that was the day I became a leader. I love that. So, so you kind of threw everything that you had learned and known and experienced out the window in that moment. And you were true to yourself and yes. you led with emotion and feelings and somehow it served you really, really well. Right. And I do think it's important to note, had I done that, you know, two months into the job, I would have probably never ended up the regional manager. Right. <laughs> Uh, you know, of a $50 million region. So right. you had to earn people's respect and they had exactly. to you. And I had to prove respect. myself. Right. Interesting. Look, again, another moment I can relate to, you know, I, I work in a very male dominated yes. industry, advertising. Um, and, you know, I'm often told not to lead with emotion and passion. And um, it was only, I don't know, a year and a half ago that I finally called BS on that and just said, why am I doing this? I am, I am a passionate person. Yes. I care deeply. And I think that 95% of the decisions, probably more that we make every single day in our lives have to do with emotion and feelings. So why do I have to 
like pretend or surprise. Yeah. Like I just yeah. really struggled with it. So I'm finally at this point where, you know, we've actually rebranded my whole agency to be about what wooing means is, you yes. know, to seek favor and affection, which is about creating emotional connections and bonds, which is yeah. again, why I'm so attracted to what you're yeah. doing because you're just doing it in a different, you know, medium than I am, right. which is right. really amazing. Yeah. So, so during this time, you also got married, remarried, and you made a special deal with your second husband. Tell us about that. So when my second now still current husband of 36 years and I were uh, decided that we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together, we were both at the same point in our careers. And we were junior executives on the rise in very big companies. We had huge careers in front of us and pretty hefty careers already. We also knew that we wanted to have kids. And we knew that even though for many of our friends, they were going to try doing both at the same time. Um, for us and for me in particular, I, I'm all in. <laughs> Whatever I do, I'm all in. And I didn't want to try to be all in on both raising my kids and being an, an at-home parent and continuing on this, uh, you know, upward trajectory of my career. So we made the deal that we, that when our first child was born, I would quit, I would quit working. And when our youngest child was well-established in an elementary school, we would switch places and he would come home and be the full-time caregiver. And I would go back to work and be the full-time wager because we both wanted this experience of being full-time at home parents and full-time supporting the family wagers. And that's what we did. I love that so much. Wow. Okay. So you guys both kind of got a chance to experience both sides of that. Exactly. What we couldn't have known and turned out to be just fortuitous and wonderful is that we would have a boy and a girl. Right. And one of the things that one of the there were many, many wonderful unknown discoveries in the whole plan and in the execution of it. But one of them is that our son doesn't believe that just because he's the guy, he's the one that's got to support the family. And our daughter does not believe that just because she's the girl, she's got to support the family. I love that. I so. mean, she's got to stay home. Very cool. So when it was your turn to swap, you decided not to go back uh, to work, but to go down the path of getting your PhD. Is that right? Not quite. Okay. So when it was my turn to go back to work, I had always thought I'd go back to industrial sales and marketing and I'd made a lot of money and I had a lot of contacts. But one of the things that happened when I stayed home was that when the kids were still very little, but like would spend a few hours in kindergarten or, uh, you know, uh, I think, yeah, especially at that point, I had some time. I joined Leadership Palo Alto as a nonprofit, which it was at the time a nonprofit, now Leadership Mid-Peninsula. Anyway, I, I thought, well, I'm going to try to do some good in the community, you know, well, I've got a few hours and, uh, and I was on the PTA and, you know, I did those things that... Uh, my schedule allowed. When I joined Leadership Palo Alto, um, I realized that one of the things that I was really intrigued by was leadership development. So then I decided, well, if I'm going to, when it's my turn to support us, 
if I'm going to go into leadership development instead, I, sh I should probably know a little bit more. I mean, yes, I've been a manager and a, and a leader for 10 years, but maybe I should know a little more before I start messing with people's lives. So I went back to get a master's in organization development. Mm -hmm. Then I realized how much I didn't know. And, uh, you know, the funny thing about education, the more you learn, the more you learn how much you don't know. Right. And I decided, well, that's not going to be enough. I'm going to get a PhD. So I got a PhD in human and organization systems. Uh, and then when it was, uh, and I did that before we made the swap, but after the kids, the day I started my PhD program was the day our youngest started kindergarten. Awesome. So it kind of lined up. Right. Perfect. So eventually a member of your dissertation committee suggested that you go see David Bradford right. um, and your journey at Stanford began. Right. So tell us about that moment and you know, how that kind of got started. Yeah. So that was an event, eventually is the operative term because after I, when we first made the swap, I, uh, I joined a consulting business and then I traveled all over the world and there was a whole other profession in there. And uh, this person who, who, this Charlie, who had been on my dissertation committee years before knew David and David had reached out to him and said, Hey, you know, we've got this class at Stanford, you know, it's, it's gotten very popular. We're looking for another person to teach it. And so, you know, on a lark, I went over to meet David Bradford. I remember to this day, walking down the hall and looking at all the names of all the professors on the doors and thinking, God, I wonder what it would be like to have my name on one of those doors. <laughs> um, kind of, you know, not really feeling very attached to it, by the way, because at my dissertation committee meeting, I sat my committee down and said, for the record, I am not getting a PhD because I ever intend to teach. I'm not, so don't make me do all that crazy crap that academics care about. I want to know what I'm doing when I'm a consulting and I'm, you know, and, and I'm being a leadership consultant, but I, I'm never going to teach. So to this, you know, to this day, well, until, up until 2018, when I left Stanford, I used to get a note from my chair of my dissertation committee addressed to Carol Robin Graduate School of Business, Stanford University, <laughs> that would always start with, for the record, I am never going to teach. Uh, um, love it. There's a lesson in that. Uh, yeah. For anybody who's listening, never say never, which is what she said to me at the time. Anyway, I went to see David and they had this class that they were teaching, you know, known by the students as touchy-feely. It's actually called interpersonal dynamics. So touchy-feely is, is not the official name. It's what people call it. Yes. No, no. I, I can't imagine a, a an elite business school calling any course touchy-feely. Right. Um, but it is a lot of, a lot of people outside of Stanford who've heard about the class don't even realize it's called interpersonal dynamic because they hear about it from students and all the students call it touchy-feely. Uh, See, I think you should make a motion to change the the, the, the name of the class because that would really lean into what it is we're talking about, that it's okay to, to not... Well, emphasis, all the time. <laughs> em emphasis on the feely, not the touchy, by the way. All right. um, Maybe it has a different meaning today. We have to be a little careful, right? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I went to see David and he told me about this class and I, and he said, you know, would you like to try teaching it for a quarter? I mean, I went through a training program with them and, and I was like, yeah, I think that'd be kind of cool. And uh, so I went to my partners 
at my consulting firm and said, hey, one quarter year, I'm not going to be able to travel. I've got to be in Palo Alto. And they were like, oh, fine, fine. Imagine the prestige of saying that one of our partners is you know, a professor at Stanford. So um, I started teaching, loved it. And then as, uh, as the stars would have it, as they line up, uh, some stuff happened for us at home. I decided I didn't want to, I didn't want to be on the road all the time. Cause at that point I was, I was flying to Australia and to Chile and we had clients all over the world. And, um, and even though Andy, we'd made the swap and Andy was home, uh, we had some stuff going on that I just wanted to be home more. And I wasn't going I wasn't going back to be the primary caregiver, but I just didn't want to travel that much. At the same time, Stanford came to me and said, hey, would you consider a full-time appointment? Because there's a lot more we'd like you to do for us. And so I went to my partners and said, hey, you guys, uh, we use that term in those days to refer to men and women. Um, I'm sensitive to that now today too, but um, hey, hey folks, I... I, I've been offered this full-time position. I want to just take a leave from the firm and go teach uh, for a while full-time. And, and then I'll be back when things have kind of settled out at home. And so and my kids are a little older and they've gone off to college or whatever. Well, then a funny thing happened that I just totally fell in love with teaching, fell in love with my students, but maybe even more importantly, really realized that that's what I'd been put on the planet to do not teach necessarily, but teach what I was teaching. This was my calling. Just like you feel so fully um, into how important it is to teach people the art of wooing, that, 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 that's my version of that is, wow, I was put on the planet to help people learn how to connect. Right. Uh, and so then after a few years, I went to my partners and I said, I'm not coming back. You'll have to buy me out. And then I stayed at Stanford and then I developed a bunch of courses for them. And right. So you were there, for, you were there for 18 years. Yes. Crazy. yes. I love it. So I'm assuming the class probably evolved over the 18 years or was it the same class for 18 years? Oh, well, the basic pedagogy of the class is called is 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 something called a T group. The T does not stand for therapy. So that stands for training, but it's this very experiential component, which is that students learn about what they do that distances others or brings others closer or influences others or actually results in others not wanting to, you know, be influenced by them. That they learn that by engaging with each other in these small groups. Right. That has not changed. Love it. So kind of the core of, of the, the foundation. Right. The experience has not changed. Over the years, of course, as there's been more and more research, more and more, I mean, it is a course taught at a major university um, and there are lectures interspersed so that the students can make meaning out of their experience and have a scaffolding to, to, um, to hang their experience on. That's why it stays with them. That's why I, I all of my colleagues and I get emails and letters and calls 10 years later, 15 years later, from, from maybe the predictable, I just became a CEO, I owe it all to you. I just, you know, I've got a bunch of money and started my company, I owe it all to you. I get just as many, if not more, pretty sure your class just saved my marriage. Wow. Or, 
or I just reconciled my relationship with my brother who I hadn't talked to for a year. And I went back to all my notes and now I'm getting, well, thank you for finally writing a darn book because (laughs) I got all these people in my life who didn't go through the class, but now I can say here, read this chapter and now let's talk. What an accomplishment. I mean, to be able to get, you know, emails that talk about things from as, you know, as different as, you know, this helped me become a CEO to you save my marriage, right? Like that, that's everything. I mean, that's kind of the the reason we do things, right? Incredible. I mean, I love the impact that you've had on people. So you, you, when I read your book and I'm assuming, you know, as even though the book obviously can't do justice to what happened in person and you did the best you very, you could so much of what that was, you talk about, about it being experiential. And so it it sounds like a lot of it was putting people in situations. So sometimes uncomfortable situations where they have to deal with things that they don't like to deal with. Exactly. Some of the questions that I have, and you have, you have entire chapters on this. So I just, again, want the very top line um, answer. Sure, sure. Tell us, you know, why do emotions have such a bad rap? Why, why, why are people, why are they looked down upon? So people often associate emotions with loss of control. Yes. And um, first of all, uh, the, the, the bunch of reasons that prevent us from uh, learning how to effectively use them in communication. So rather than learning how to do that, we just don't, <laughs> we don't talk about them. So for starters, sometimes the problem with, with feelings is that they don't fit our self-identity. I'm not the kind of person who gets wound up or hurt when that happens. Well, okay, maybe not, but maybe right now you're a little bit miffed. Um, The other thing is that people don't realize that emotions are impermanent. So just because I'm feeling annoyed right now, does that mean I'm going to be annoyed forever or was annoyed last week? So rather than actually say, you know, I'm a little annoyed right now and having us talk about it, then I don't say anything. Then you're going to do it again. Um, and, and also we do a funny kind of math when it comes to emotions. And this is in one of the chapters. We think plus five plus minus five equals zero. I really like you. I think you're a wonderful person, plus five. You know, you keep doing this thing that irritates the heck out of me, minus five. So I'll say nothing. Instead of when it comes to emotions and feelings, plus five plus minus five equals plus five plus minus five. Mm-hmm. I can say both. And by the way, we're both better off because now you know what that I that I really feel f- a lot of fondness and care. And I've actually given you a chance to find out that you do something that's annoying to me that you now have a choice on whether or not you want to keep doing. Mm-hmm. So, so is everything that you're talking about, because you talked about, you know, how for a lot of people, um, emotions is, you know, kind of how you express yourself and it means getting excited and crazy and not can be being out of control. So does that kind of tie into emotional intelligence? Is that, so that's the answer is it's what, how you manage those emotions and how you deal with it that matters. Right. Because managing emotions is different than suppressing them. And in fact, I would argue that better you learn how to manage your emotions and use them effectively in relating to others, actually proactively, um, not only are you going to be able to create stronger relationships, you're actually much more likely 
to not lose control. Right. And so, so the, so the key just to sum it up is emotions are okay. As long as you know how to manage the emotions and use it effectively, it's, it's suppressing them that causes the problem. It's it. Yeah. It also suppressing them also causes physical, you know, it, it's bad for you. It's bad for your health. Yeah. And it's also very distancing. Right. Let's go back to the story. I told you about my, you know, my offsite, you suppress emotion you give people a chance to make up all kinds of stories about you, including, oh, you're not very, you're not a human being. Right. You're just an automaton. Right. Wow. I, everything you're saying is like giving me chills. I love it so much. Okay. Let's talk about vulnerability. Cause I know that one of the things that you teach in your class and you talk about in the book is, you know, the importance of vulnerability. Now this one is, a, this is a really it's kind of a touchy subject for me yes. um, just because as a leader, you know, I, you know, I try to be as honest and open and vulnerable as I can, but, you know, sometimes you worry that people are going to um, hold things against you or take it mm -hmm. out of context or so let me, let me stop you for a moment. And sure. I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to remake that statement by using the pronoun I, instead of you. Sometimes I worry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So sometimes I worry about being too vulnerable because mm -hmm. I feel like people will use what I say, what, what I say against mm -hmm. me at a future date. Yeah. I know this is something you work through with people and building that trust is important. Exactly. But, you know, as a business owner, you know, you just, you worry about those kinds of things. And I'm, you know, obviously not trying to. No, no, not you, me. not you, not you worry. Right. As a business I owner, worry. I, I say very good. I worry about this because, you know, I've had experiences where, you know, sometimes you have to let people go down of the road course. and things change and relationships change. And then you wonder, gosh, I really opened no, up. Then I wonder, I, I have to let people okay. go. Yeah. I wonder. Okay. And the reason that I'm, the reason I'm beating on you about that. Oh, it's good. It's good. I need it. Is that even doing that, does that feel just a wee bit more vulnerable? Yes, it does. <laughs> okay. Very. So, so that's why I stopped you and I interrupted you. Yeah. Because part of what makes us feel vulnerable is being more seen. It's also what makes us feel really good in a relationship where we feel more seen. And when we don't know what someone is going to do with that information, then we feel vulnerable. And one of the things we talk about in the book a lot is this idea, and I don't know if you're going to ask me about it later, but this idea of 15%, which is you know, there's three operating arenas. There's, there's what you say without thinking twice about it. That's the comfort zone. There's what you'd never in a million years say. That's the danger zone. There's three concentric circles. And there's the circle in the middle that we call the learning zone or, you know, there's all kinds of fancy terms for it in education research, the zone of proximal development. Basically, it's where you learn and grow. You don't ever step outside your comfort zone. You don't learn and grow. You get too far outside. You don't learn and grow. So, when, but when we used to tell our students, "Look, you're going to have to step outside your learning, your 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 uh, comfort zone," they used to say, "But Carol, the minute I'm outside my comfort zone, how do I know I'm not in my danger zone?" So, we came up with this 15% rule: try stepping a little bit outside your comfort zone, and once you have you'll find that your comfort zone with that person and in that situation has redrawn. It's gotten just 15% bigger, especially if nothing went wrong. Then you can go 15% beyond that. And um, 
and I'm going to come back to, you know, in a business context, especially why this is really useful. Um, because one of the things, you know, and the and is that if I'm willing to step outside 15% outside my comfort zone, first of all, it's unlikely that anything's going to go terribly awry. It's only a little bit. The world's not going to end. I'm not going to like, you're not going to freak out. I'm not going to freak out. And you're more likely to be willing to reciprocate and step 15% outside yours. That's how we build relationships. Mm -hmm. We don't go from zero to hundred in 3.2 seconds. Mm -hmm. So now let's come back to a business setting where as a leader, we know that one way to gain more referent power, there's lots of sources of power for leaders. One of them is referent power. Are you somebody that other people say, gee, I'd like to be more like that. Um, and being able to connect with others is a source of referent power. And you can't connect with others if you're not willing to be vulnerable and uh, authentic. Now, I want to use that word authentic very carefully because in business, we have the concept of authentic appropriate authenticity, right? TMI, TMI is always TMI. Something especially to note in a business situation is that research shows that leaders that are willing to make themselves vulnerable, uh, as long as it's not about a core competence, create the most high functioning organizations. Mm -hmm. And when I say, you know, but if I'm the VP of marketing and I stand up in front of everybody and I say, well, that's the third month in a row we've lost share. I have no idea what's happening. I don't know what to do about it. I feel awful. Maybe I shouldn't be a VP of marketing. That would be inappropriate authenticity. But it doesn't mean I don't stand up in front of troops and say, well, that's three months in a row we've lost share. Feels really crummy. I've got some ideas. I wish I had it all figured out, but I don't. I've never needed all of you more. That's also authentic. Mm -hmm. But what most leaders, where most leaders land is they don't say anything because it's too vulnerable. Everybody knows you just lost market share for three months. Right. Everybody's expecting you to say something. Right. So, so really interesting because that leads into my next question. So do you, do you find that women are better at expressing than men? And is, is ego part of what stops men from being able to do something like that to be as vulnerable? Or are they are they different? Uh, so I don't know that women are better at expressing, especially I think a lot of it depends on the environment, on the context and the environment. Some women have an even harder time expressing feelings in very male dominated right. arenas because for fear of how they'll be judged. Right. What I think women are wired to do a little bit are I think there's some research that supports this. Women are more wired are more wired to be more sensitive, mm -hmm. to notice feelings more. I would argue some of that is socialization, um, and and also and maybe also some wiring. Maybe it's got to do with maternal instincts. I don't know, but women in general feel sooner and more deeply and then that means that they have at least the option to speak feelings more easily mm -hmm. uh, and you know depending on how any whether a man or a woman how they've been socialized especially if they've been so socialized to suppress feelings then even women can't access them and how are you going to express anything you can't access right 
And so you also talk a lot about, you know, feedback and the importance of feedback, which, you know, I'm assuming is, you know, doing it in the, in the right way, constructive criticism. Um, you know, we just put a policy into my company, which we're calling the go to the source policy, just so, Uh because there tends to be, you know, people come to me as a CEO and be like, this person's not doing their job and that person's not doing their job. And can you help me fix it? I'm like, no, 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 you go fix, you go talk to that person talk to them with kindness and candor, tell them what they're doing wrong, um, or tell them how they can be better at, at, at supporting you, supporting them, and see where it goes. Because I've, I've learned through experience that 80 to 90% of the time, it'll resolve itself versus going to tell on them or having me try to step in and mediate for you. So I guess the question is, um, you know, are people wired to, you know, accept constructive feedback? Because it seems like people get defensive and ego starts to play a role. And how do you how do you just make people really successful at being able to accept constructive criticism? Because I've learned that when I get feedback that's really good, that's when I learn and grow and get exactly. 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 Yeah. So for starters, I don't think people are wired not to receive it. Uh I think there are cultural norms we have to pay attention to. And by the way, there's also cultural norms uh, and and associated with whether it's okay for men to express feelings or not. That's also cultural, by the way, which is why in the West, especially, you know, in in the U.S., men are socialized to, as long as you express anger in a a nonviolent way, you can express anger. But boy, you better not express any other feelings if you want to be seen as a man. Uh, you know, so now let's go to feedback. We've all been probably, or not all, and many of us have experienced a feedback exchange gone awry. <laughs> uh, you know, I tried to give it to you. It was like stepping in a pile of doo-doo. You tried to give it to me. I felt really defensive. I watched an interaction. It went badly. So we develop mental models, these assumptions and beliefs about what will happen. And that's the first thing we need to do if we're gonna get better at feedback is we have to shift our mental model. And that is, it's data. That's all it is, it's data. And I dare anybody to tell me that in business especially, but in life, more data isn't better than less data. So if I learn to see feedback as data, I will give it to you, believing I'm giving you a gift because I'm giving you data with which to choose what you do. And I will certainly receive it as a gift. So I don't know if we have time for this, but it's a really great anecdote. Um, My, you can always take it out later. Uh, My, when my son was going off to the East Coast to look at colleges, because of course, God forbid, he should look at any of the great colleges that exist 50 mile radius of where, where we live. I'm in that his, boat right now. So yeah, yeah I <laughs> his dad was going to take him. And uh, Nick came in the kitchen and said, Mom, Mom, you know, don't send me with dad, this is gonna be terrible. I said, what, what do you mean? He's like, Oh, my God, you know, dad, he's like the energizer bunny, he's gonna be at the front of every tour. He's going to ask a million questions. All the other kids are going to be like, oh my God, that poor kid. I'm going to be, that's his father. I'm going to be so embarrassed. Please don't send us. Then we're going to get back to the car. He's going to pepper me with questions. Please take me. I said, honey, 
I, you know, our spring breaks don't correspond. So I'm sorry. You either go with your dad or you don't go. But what is, you know, I said, sounds like you've got feedback for your dad. So yeah, I get the teenage eye roll, which I'm sure you know. And he says, but can you imagine how much that'll hurt his feelings? Mm -hmm. That's another reason we don't give people feedback. Mm -hmm. I said, well, what do you think will hurt his feelings more? For him never to have an opportunity to even have a conversation with you about this and for you to sort of go around him or for you to tell him. Then he says, well, can you tell him? I said, nope, not how feedback works. So at dinner that night, you know, he says, so dad, mom says, I have to tell you this. doesn't matter how you get into it as long as you do it. And then he told Andy. So, you know, I don't so want to go. Went, and he went to the source. Right. I don't, yep. I don't want to go. This is why I don't want to go. This is what I'm afraid of. Now, what do you imagine were the first words out of Andy's mouth? Data. As data. Got it. As a gift. Got it. What do you do when somebody gives you a gift? You see, but he's been taught that. I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's really Okay, but wait, 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 wait. Before you get defensive or yeah. but not on before you go to there. Yeah. The first words out of his mouth is, are thank you. Wow, Nick. Thank you for caring enough about our relationship to tell me that. I bet that was hard. Now, Nick's shoulders drop right next to me. And now they move into a problem-solving conversation because Andy says, what, sh what shall we do about it? And what they decide is that they will park the car and they will go their separate ways at every campus. Wow. And Andy can still be at the front of every tour, ask all the questions he wants and be the energizer bunny. Nick might be on that tour or not, but he can walk away. Nobody knows they're related. <laughs> Perfect solution. And then they can come back to the car and... Andy agrees that he'll wait until Nick says, okay, dad, I'm, I'm ready to talk right. about this campus versus that one. And they went and it completely changed their relationship. Mm -hmm. And the bookend to that story is that Nick did go East. And when he came West to go to a well-known business school in Palo Alto, he called Andy and said, Hey dad, how about a road trip? Help me bring all my stuff back home. I love it. So not everyone's so blessed to be married to, to, to get that feedback from you, but I guess, you know, no, but a, everybody has the opportunity to learn this. Oh, for sure. For sure. I just think, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like just listening to you talk, you're, it, I can't express to you how much you're like, you're talking to my soul and my heart yeah. and my core. Cause these are all the things that I'm trying to communicate to my staff at my, I, I literally cannot wait to literally put this in front of my staff because you are just articulating everything that I'm trying to do in such a beautiful way. Of course, you were a Stanford professor for 18 <laughs> years. I, I, I do not obviously have that credential. But you know, I think that you 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 obviously realize this. Like people aren't always taught the tools to be able wow. to to do that's that. Correct. And that's exactly right. And when somebody gives you feedback, it is a gift and it's data. And the fact that someone cares enough to share it, right, it's just so powerful and um you know and remember remember that the that the purpose of constructive feedback is to move into problem solving correct not to change the other person not to make them feel cram you know crummy it's to move in we got a problem what shall we do about it correct now the model in the book uh which is central to the course can also be used when somebody uh, gets defensive because if the model is here's the behavior that you're engaging in here's the impact of that behavior on me 
And here's my intent in telling you, I can use that same line of thinking when somebody has gotten defensive when I, by the way, the reason people get defensive is that we don't follow that. Notice the difference between, I feel that you don't care, which is not feedback. Or notice the difference between that and, you know, when I send you three emails in a row and I ask you to respond within a certain amount of time and I hear and I don't hear back from you, that's the behavior. I don't feel cared for. Mm-hmm. Now I'm owning my reaction. So, so the examples, like giving concrete examples is an important part of that process. Hugely important. The, the feedback has to be behaviorally specific. What is it that you are doing? Or what is it that I'm doing that you'd like me to do differently? Then you have to avoid, you know, without the picture and the, go buy the book and read chapter seven, because there's a, there's a picture of this model called the net in the book. Essentially, if I tell you what you're doing and its impact on me, then I don't make any attributions or label you. I feel that you don't care. First of all, it doesn't have a single feeling word in it. And second of all, it uh, is likely to make you defensive. What do you mean you don't, I don't care? You don't, unless you've said, frankly, I don't care, right? So, but that's how we get in trouble. We impute motives, we label, uh, rather than staying with the behavior and its impact on me. Beautiful. Ah, so well put. Amazing. Okay. I mean, wow, that just, <laughs> I think just wrapped it up in a, in a beautiful bow for everyone listening. I mean, such an important learning, just, just a wow moment. Cause again, you know, something we've been talking about, you're just, you're just contextualizing it in a way that just makes so much more sense. So super. Yeah. Exciting. And you know, the reason I told you the Andy Nick story is two is twofold. One is the next time you have feedback for somebody, remember them. Mm-hmm. Remember that I don't want to hurt their feelings and, you know, what they would have passed up, what the cost would have been. Yeah. Remember that actually being able to have conversations like that strengthen and deepen a relationship. Right. They and don't so, have you, so feedback can actually change the way someone behaves. You can actually change people if you do it the right way. Well, you can provide them with data with which they can make a, a more informed choice. Of what if to you do tell me that something that I do bugs the heck out of you and I care about you, I'm actually going to make an effort to not do that anymore. If you, if you care, if I care, if you don't care, and, you might and do it. If I don't care, if I don't care, then you can, then you can provide the feedback to me in terms of how I might be paying a cost right. for engaging. That's a different form of care. Like maybe I don't care about you, but let's say that we've been at a meeting, you've interrupted me, you know, f- four times. You started the meeting by saying, I want to hear from everybody. Every time I started to say something, you interrupted me. After the meeting, I say to you, so you know what? You interrupted me four times in that meeting. And uh, frankly, you know, that I, f- I felt irritated. By the way, that's why the vocabulary of feelings is part of the syllabus mm-hmm. and in the appendix of the book. And you can't give good feedback without it. I felt insert feeling word. I felt irritated. And that's likely to result in my feeling less inclined to offer up my opinions in meetings. And maybe that's okay with you, but maybe 
if that's happened to me, it's happened to someone else. And you do care about them offering up their opinions. Right. So then maybe you'll be a little more thoughtful about whether you keep interrupting. Amazing. Carol, I think you've just given me a small taste of what it's like to be a student at Stanford. Oh my gosh, like a dream to just... Um, or yeah. leaders in tech, you can. Yeah, let's talk, let, yeah. So you know, you again, you've done an amazing job. Hopefully, you know that's enough to yeah. get people. I mean, if you're not, if people aren't like clicking on that Amazon link right now. I'll be shocked. <laughs> um, but let's, you know, let's move on because I do want people to, you know, have the full experience of reading your book. There's so many amazing thoughts and lessons. In yeah, there. yeah, yeah. So, and so and if anybody's interested in actually an an, an in in depth experience. Uh, I started Leaders in Tech because I wanted to create the experience for more people, um, one of the reasons. So if you're in tech, right now it's only for tech, maybe someday it'll be more, but if you're in tech and you are in a, in a leadership role or in a management position, we have these four-day standalone retreats we do. Amazing. Uh, and you go to, go to leadersintech.org and uh, you'll find all kinds of offerings there. Beautiful. So Leaders in Tech is something that you uh, co-founded or started yeah. right after you left. I left Stanford. Exactly. Got it. Was that a huge decision to leave? Was that a very emotional decision? Oh, yeah. It was <laughs> It was a very, very difficult decision. It was, by the way, the best decision that, uh, other than marrying Andy, probably the best decision I ever made. Um, at the time, it was, it was awful because I was feeling very... Um, I was, I was really mad. I was mad at the administration. I loved my students. I was very torn. And I also thought if I stay, I don't know if this anger, I think this anger is going to get worse and then, and then I'm going to get resentful and then everybody around me is going to pay. So I think it's better if I just leave. It was just time. And yeah. And, uh, and man, biggest favor they ever did me was piss me off. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes it works out that way. It does. Awesome. So that then led you to writing this book with David Bradford. Um, so just tell us how that came about, just because I know so many people listening might be interested in getting a book published on something they're passionate about. Oh, man. If, you're gonna, if, you're, if anybody's going to go write a book, let me spend 15 minutes on the phone with me because, man, are there a lot of things I wish I'd learned. Right. Um, not the least of which is that no matter what you hear from anybody else, your publisher unless you're already a big name and known is going to do nothing for you. So if you're going to write a book, you're also going to have to create a marketing business to go with it. If you're ever going to want it to go anywhere. Um, Good to know. Good to know. And, uh, and, you know, it's a real labor of love. And by the way, don't write a book if you expect to make any money. Yeah. Um, from it was an easy call for David and me. This is this is our legacy. I believe with every ounce of my body that if we got a critical mass of human beings on this planet to learn these skills and develop these competencies, we would have a. I've see, I see it at Stanford. I see what happens to the culture at the Stanford Business School because right. so many students know this. Right. And when I think about what would families, healthier families healthier, more functional schools, stronger communities. I mean, it, we'd have a different world. So, you know, you mentioned you're Jewish. So am I. It's all about tikkun olam. You got to leave the world a little better than you found it. Mm -hmm. And this is mine. This is my little piece of tikkun olam. Yeah. And uh, that's how the book came to be. 
And so it's been translated into 15 languages and yeah. you already have 55,000 copies sold. That's nothing to sneeze at. So, although for me, it's like a drop in the bucket. Oh, it is. <laughs> I think, you, look, I think, um, you know, doing what you're doing here with me today, you know, just, I, I'm literally have already bought the book for four people and it's just, you know, you got to find that tipping point, right? Exactly. So, so just continuing doing what you're doing and just like how inspirational you are, you know, is, I, I think it's going to catch. So I'm very optimistic about the future of this book just because it's so fantastic. Thank awesome. you. Thank All you. Right. Carol, thank you so much for, you know, sharing your incredible story. And again, wishing you so much luck with this incredible book. Um, I just want to ask you a few rapid fire questions to kind sure. of uh, tie this up. Yep. So tell us what keeps you up at night? Running out of time to have the impact I want to have in the world. If you could completely switch careers and do something just off the charts different, what would it be? I, I thought about this a lot. This is my calling. This is what I was put on the planet to do. I would not do anything different. Great answer. Biggest challenge facing women in business today? Uh, the continuing way in which women are socialized. What is your biggest strength? My biggest strength is also my biggest weakness when I overdo it, which is that I am driven and committed and all in, leave it all on the field. If you could add one skill set to what you did that just something you're not very good at, what would it be? Um, I don't know if it's a skill, but I'd have more faith that I don't have to make it all happen. Where do you see yourself going next? Well, it's sort of related to I wouldn't switch careers. Uh, I, I think just a continuing exploration and journey of getting this out into the world. Right. And you're evolving the message in different mediums, yeah. you know, first by being a professor and then the leaders in tech and now the book. And so right. it'll be other iterations of how it manifests itself, right? Exactly. Yeah. And lastly, what is your actionable advice for those listening? So first, invest in yourself. Second, remember that we are all works in progress. Uh, and the third is learn to connect. Beautiful. Well, Carol, I, I can honestly tell you this has been an incredibly inspirational conversation, one that I'm very excited to share with everyone I know, my team at work. Um, thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank you for making the time. Just wow. I'm blown away. Thank you. Thank you for you're the opportunity. You're truly an inspiration. And uh, for those of you who are listening, we really, really appreciate your support. Please like and follow us. We are on every major platform. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at she underscore dynasty. And I think uh, that's a wrap for today. Great. Awesome. Thank you, Carol.